Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is our quality lead here at MCHD, Kevin Crocker. Hello, everybody. And we are lucky enough to have special repeat guests here on the podcast. We have the uh, EMS Medical Director of uh, Williamson County, Dr. Jeff Jarvis. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And we brought Jeff on today because we recently saw uh, some uh, work that Dr. Jarvis published in pre-hospital emergency care on lights and sirens. And we tackled this issue here at MCHD, or at least uh, attempted to address a similar issue in looking at when we use lights and sirens and are we using them properly and are they really generating an advantage for us? We uh, looked at that pre-COVID, I guess it probably was the end of the year last year, correct, Kevin? Uh, I think it was early this year, actually, like I, January-ish, because we looked at 2019 data. Well, anything before, I guess, BC, before COVID now. That um, seems like uh, years ago. Yeah, <laughs> 2001. <laughs> um, but looking at, this, looking at this data was really interesting to me, and I really wanted to bring Dr. Jarvis on to talk more about it, because I think there's a lot to learn here, and I think there's uh, definitely a needle to move within within our profession, but there's some dogma that has to be challenged and some traditions that have to be challenged and no better way to do that than looking at the actual numbers and the, and the hard data. So before we dive into the study details, Jeff, tell us what drove you to pursue this line of research to kind of start investigating this and looking further into it. You bet. So it's interesting. I actually started my career as a volunteer at Texas A&M EMS and way back in the day, in 1986, I started off before I had any medical training as a dispatcher and we trained on the priority dispatch system. And one of the things we would do is assign uh, red lights and sirens responses based only on the information we had through the priority dispatch. So I understood from way back that using lights and sirens could be dangerous. Well, fast forward to early this year, late last year, I was um, out at Marble Falls Area EMS, where I'm also the medical director, and Vaughn Hamilton, who does a lot of training for them, asked me a question. He said, well, what is the downside to using red lights and sirens, and why do you think we should, because uh, he actually knew my response here, why do you think we should be a little more um, choosy about who we go lights and sirens on? I said, well, that's a great question, Vaughn. Why don't we do a paper on it? So, what we know about this is that the use of red lights and sirens, and this is based on the existing literature, the use of red lights and sirens is um, associated with an increased rate of ambulance crashes. Of those crashes, it's in associated with an increase in injuries. So if you're involved in a crash, the severity of injuries is actually higher if you're using red lights and sirens. And we also know that it is associated with increased rate of collisions not involving ambulances, so all of the folks around the ambulance, so the sort of a halo effect. There isn't really any good evidence that the use of red lights and sirens improves outcome. We just assume that, well, it has to be faster, and if it's faster, it must be better because we're in the life-saving business and, you know, we, we're heroes, we got to get there rapidly. 
to save some lives. So it's sort of interesting when you look at the literature, there are a couple of things that we find. What I was really interested in is what was the clinical yield of using red lights and sirens. And that's been studied before when it comes to the use of red lights and sirens to the emergency department. And I think it was studied there first because it was just easier. That's where the light was better, if you were. Um, there was a paper by O'Brien that would use a chase vehicle to chase the ambulance to the emergency department. Ambulance would go lights and sirens. Chase vehicle would not, would obey all laws. And what they found was they saved about four minutes using lights and sirens to the emergency department, but only 5% of all of those patients that went lights and sirens had any sort of time critical intervention performed at any time they were in the emergency department. 81% of them had no interventions in the ED at all. There was another paper, basically same methodology, but in a different system. This is Marquis uh, Baptiste, and she found about 4.5% of transports had any time critical intervention. So that's pretty consistent, 5%. Um, and they saved about 2.5 minutes to the ER using lights and sirens, and no critical, no patient at all had an intervention in the first 2.6 minutes. So it seems that the clinical yield is not very good. So we see that there is some time savings, not a whole lot of benefit going to the emergency department, but maybe there's a benefit if we rush really fast to the scene, but we don't know. There's been no literature on that. So that's what we wanted to look into. And all those things kind of piqued our interest here at MCHD as well. So. Uh, I remember a few years back, ASEP actually put a paper out saying that they recommended in the future um, as a long-term goal that in the pre-hospital environment, the response to a hospital, I'm sorry, the response to a scene using lights and sirens should be around 50% or less. Uh, so that kind of piqued our interest. And we've done some work here at MCHD looking at our own internal data to kind of drive that number down. Um, so I get that's a perfect lead into our next question. So do lights and sirens actually benefit anyone? And if so, who is that population? And how much time, uh, according to the research you've done, um, does using lights and sirens actually save responding to the scene? So it's a great question. First off, we want to know what is the actual clinical outcome benefit of lights and sirens? Well, that's, it's hard to quantify. We know going lights and sirens to the emergency department, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of benefit. Very few patients seem to get an intervention done at all, much less faster. And if they're not getting any time critical intervention, then there's not much point in saving a few minutes of time to get there, especially if that's associated with increased risk. But we just don't know about outcomes responding to the scene. No literature at all. And our, our paper doesn't really address that. We use a surrogate measure, on the other hand, and what we're trying to find is, did we do something that is potentially life-saving? Now, the second part of your question is, what does the literature say about how much time is saved going to the scene? Well, there are a couple of papers that look at this, both in urban areas and in rural areas. And in urban areas, the time savings is 1.6 minutes. In rural areas, it's a little more. It's 3.6 minutes. So I think we can pretty easily say, overall, we're saving between one and four minutes of our response time by using red lights and sirens. And that kind of aligns with what we found when we did our data search in January, we kind of looked at all of 2019 
Uh, so all of our responses. And when you looked at lights and sirens versus no lights and sirens, we had about 86 seconds um, of average time saved by using lights and sirens. Yeah, matches up perfectly. Yeah, yeah. And I think y'all are, you have, um, you know, pretty overall, I would say y'all are probably suburban, but you have some rural areas and you have some pretty congested areas. Yeah, it's a good mix. Yeah, And I bet yeah. if you broke it down by station, I would assume that's probably a longer number for the more rural spots and probably lesser for the more urban that just re- reflects yeah. those exact numbers. Absolutely. And I'd, I'd say that 86 is probably right in there, some sort of combo of those two. I think suburban would just, would describe us perf- per- perfectly. So getting into the study details a little bit, Jeff, just go through a brief overview of how you designed it, You know, kind of where the data com- came from, um, you, you know, and, and really, I guess your hypothesis and take home points for the for the listeners out there who've not seen it. Absolutely. So our objective was to try to describe and validate a methodology for how systems can look at their data, their CAD data, their call nature data, and their response and intervention data, and craft a meaningful and more or less objective way of deciding when to use red lights and sirens and not. So our specific research question was we wanted to define the proportion of responses to the scene using red lights and sirens that had a potentially life-saving intervention done at any point during the call. Now, we call a potentially life-saving intervention in this paper a PLSI. So that's what we're looking for. And what we did was just said, what is the rate of PLSI by call nature for these lights and sirens responses? Now, our methodology, this was a retrospective chart review, and we figured if you're going to look at data, you may as well go big or go home. So we went to our buddies at ESO, and we used the 2000, I want to say it was the 2018 data set. There were a lot of calls. I'm looking for my notes to try to tell you exactly how many. It was roughly speaking, here we go, 6 million 911 calls. We included only those calls that had a red lights and sirens response, had a documented call nature, and had patient contact. So if you get canceled en route, not a very good chance that you're going to do a PLSI. So we excluded those. And we ended up with a, um, an analysis data set of 3.8 million calls. So pretty small in value. It's a very small, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Larger studies are needed. Exactly. So we looked at, and really the funny thing about that is there's only one place with a bigger data set and that's Nemesis. And my guess is, is that you're going to see similar results when you look at Nemesis. So we used a consensus um, approach. There were four of us on this paper. Uh, So my co-authors were Vaughn Hamilton, Mike Tagman, and Dr. Lawrence Brown. Uh, One of the reasons it was exciting to work with Vaughn on this is he was the actual one who asked this question. Uh, Mike, if you know Mike, is just incredible. He has been uh, working on this. We talked about this when we were sitting down at uh, EMS Agenda 2050, and we talked about it. And then Lawrence Brown has done a lot of work on uh, just this issue, red lights and sirens use. And he's one of the ones responsible for a paper that came out, I was going to say last year, it's probably two years now, in Annals of Emergency Medicine showing the association with increased severity of collisions. So that was our methodology. We used the ESO data set and we narrowed down just red lights and sirens responses. And we said, what proportion of those had a PLSI? Um, 
Overall, the results, 6.9%. So 7% of all red lights and sirens had any PLSI done at any point during the call. So 7%. And that's running a lot of 911 calls. So basically 86% of all 911 responses used lights and sirens. So substantially above the 50% mark that ASAP set. Um, so I think we can probably do better. We can target that uh, lights and sirens response. So 6.9 seems a bit low. I don't know what the right number is, but that seems pretty low. So we also broke that down by call nature. And what we found is the call nature, and again, remember this is dispatch nature. It's using only the data that is available to us before EMS arrives on scene. So no Ouija boards here. We can't use the data that we get once we're already on scene to determine how we should get to the scene. That doesn't seem fair. Of the call natures, cardiac arrest had the highest proportion of PLSI. And it was actually interesting. This was surprising to me. It was 45% of calls dispatched as a cardiac arrest had any PLSI done. And when we dug into that a little bit, because that definitely was not what we were expecting, I think that is because of the vagaries of dispatch. So we know that we want to assume a 911 call is a cardiac arrest until we have evidence that it's not. Um, you have the, the whole impetus for dispatchers is to get people in route and provide CPR instructions. So we want to err on the side that it's a cardiac arrest and not. So only about half of those, 54% of calls dispatched as a cardiac arrest actually were in arrest upon arrival. So we are definitely oversensitive across the nation with our dispatch criteria. And that's probably the right thing to do. When we excluded those patients who did not, were not in arrest on arrival, then the PLSI proportion went up to 70%. And it still seems a bit low, uh, but I think that is because there's a fair number of cardiac arrest. I mean, think about your experience. You get there and they have a DNR or they're clearly they're in arrest, but they've been in arrest for the past month. Probably not going to do anything at all. So I think that's what um, is the reason that that rate is so low. So, so part of the interesting paper to me uh, was how you guys decided what the PLSIs would be. Um, yeah. So kind of talk about the process of how you guys decided what life-saving events would be or life-saving uh, interventions would be and how you guys kind of came to an agreement as a group and the inter-rater reliability piece that was in the, in the paper. Cause that, that part fascinates me. You bet. So hopefully you're not asking about the statistical test we use to judge inter-rater reliability because I did whatever Lawrence told me. To do. <laughs> I'm not getting that far in the weeds now. Good, good, good. I could good. That what, what that means is I can make some numbers up and I won't get called on it. I like it. And we wouldn't know the um, difference if you did. So it's fine. Well, good. That would be all of us. I wouldn't either. <laughs> So basically what we did, we had to come up with a list of PLSI and we knew that it was going to be arbitrary and it was going to be subjective, but we came up with a definition and we said anything that might potentially be life-saving, let's err on the side a liberal, a liberal definition where we're saying if it might be life-saving, it is. And then the four of us, I went through the ESO data set and pulled out every intervention in the system. I did some grouping together. So for example, midazolam is in there and Versed is in there. And then just because when you get into any data set, the data is messy. We had midazolam spelled 15 different ways and Versed spelled about 30 different ways. So I grouped all of those things. So then there was just midazolam. 
and lorazepam and diazepam, um, things like that. And then we, each one reviewed that list independently and said yes or no. That is a PLSI or it's not. And then we compared the results and those that had 100% agreement that it was a PLSI made it into the list. 100% agreement that it was not, was not in the list. And then we took those that there was some disagreement on and we collectively as a group reviewed them and we made our case. And then we decided um, unanimously whether it was in or whether it was out. And our final list had unanimous agreement across all of us. I'm a little curious if that was a a cordial meeting between you guys or was it kind of a a tension contested meeting arguing about what should qualify as a PLSI? Actually, it was pretty, it was pretty easy. We, when you understand that we're going on a liberal definition, we were pretty good. Um, So yeah, it was, we got along pretty well. What were the, uh, and this was, this is off the, uh, off the question list outline, but just out of, out of curiosity, what were the ones that were the, uh, the kind of the last last dominoes to fall. I mean, obviously, you know, things like epinephrine are going to be uh, right. a PLSI. What were the ones that were the the fifty fifty uh, sort of the most discussion? Sure, and I'm trying to remember. There weren't many of them. I think the initial unanimous agreement was about eighty eight to ninety percent. Mm-hmm. So of those that weren't, the one that really sticks out in my head was glucose. So we determined that giving glucose, um, glucose wasn't in there and analgesia. So fentanyl, morphine, um, and the 15 million opioids that are in there, uh, we decided was not potentially life-saving. Doesn't mean it's not useful, um, but we were trying to come up with a definition of PLSI and that's what we came up with. Kevin and I actually discussed glucose before we, before we came on, just kind of talking about where we're going to go with this today. And, and I would say that glucose definitely falls in, in the liberal, um, as far as life saving. I mean, urgent, yes. You know, emergent, I don't know, 90 seconds difference, you know, two minutes difference there with the glucose. I mean, if you're in anaphylactic shock and you wait two minutes on epinephrine for sure, that could be, that could be a difference maker. But if your sugar's 40, 35 and you wait two minutes on the sugar, you're, I mean, I want it two minutes sooner, but I don't know about life saving, or not. And that, that definitely to me is a, is a good solid example of what that liberal, those liberal right. choices were. And I think that if anything, that lends the paper more power because it shows that you probably kept some things. That number is probably even smaller um, oh, yeah. for truly life-saving interventions. So yeah. And to your, your point earlier about clinical relevance and clinical outcomes, like it'd be fun to dig into that stuff. And does the two minutes for the glucose make a clinical relevant outcome difference? Um, Absolutely. And that, great that's actually to have. exactly the question. Yep. Um, so my understanding of the literature and certainly my experience is five minutes of hypoglycemia versus two minutes of hypoglycemia. What is the difference in outcome? I, I don't know. I mean, I would prefer it be two minutes rather than five minutes, but I, I don't know what the, the clinical outcome is. I haven't seen any evidence that there's a mortality benefit. So I, I would be surprised if there were. But the, this does bring up an interesting point, and this is one of the limitations of the paper. Any group of um, medics or physicians that you get together and say, is intervention X life-saving or not, you're not going to have universal agreement. Uh, nobody's going to agree on it. So maybe the list that we came up with, some people would argue it. So, for example, y'all would want to include glucose reasonable thing to do. We didn't, but it's a reasonable thing to do. The other big 
issue is, so the results would be different using a different list, no doubt. I don't think they would be much different, but we didn't do that. And the next question is when you look at the call natures, there are a whole lot of call natures. Some of them are free text and, you know, you have a dispatcher somewhere who's not using a priority dispatch system. Um, others are, and we don't know who was and who was not using it because that's not part of the ESO data set. So some things, some people may dispatch calls, for example, as cardiac arrest, if it is a known expected death and we know from the beginning, nobody's going to do anything about it. While other departments may use cardiac arrest only for CPR in progress. So there's a fair amount of variation there, or at least the potential for variation. So the big, um, where I think the value in this paper is, isn't so much the actual numbers, but the methodology. And what I urge people to do isn't just to take our results and assume that they're going to be the same results you would get if you repeated this in your system, but to take the methodology and say, we need to look and we collectively need to come up with what our list of PLSI are and run it against our list of call natures and come up with what our rate is. And then the other issue is, well, 7%, what do I do with that information? And here is my takeaway on it. This is what I would do. I think we need to have a rational way of deciding which call natures we should respond with lights and sirens on. So in our system, we are going to get together and we would have done this already, except you may have noticed there's a little virus running around that's distracting all of us. We were going to get together and say, what is our threshold for use of lights and sirens? Is it 10%? Is it 5%? Is it 50%? Whatever we come up with, we're then going to run our data and say, what for every one of our call natures, what is the proportion of uh, PLSI that's done? If it's above our threshold, then we're going to go lights and sirens to that call nature. If it's below that threshold, we're not going to go lights and sirens to those call natures. And then we're going to follow the data. Did that decrease our use of lights and sirens? That's what we want. And did we have any misses? That's what we don't want. So that's kind of, uh, that's my real takeaway and where I want to see this go. On an individual service level, it leads me into the next question perfectly. You know, how would you approach this, not on a, on a macro ESO NEMSIS data set approach, but from a, you know, a Wilco, Marble Falls, MCHD standpoint, flip it around and we're going to look at our, you know, we're going to look at our dispatch determinants mm -hmm. beyond just looking at the, you know, which, which cards pulled or what the free text is, what are thinking forward into how you're going to implement this? What are some of the things, some of the call specifics, some of the, you know, some of the data points, some of the, uh, you know, hard and fast uh, things that you're going to use to try to decide early on that license sirens might be beneficial because life-saving intervention X or life-saving intervention Y, like the predictors, what, what are some of those, what do you think some of those predictors will actually be on an individual call level? Or do you guys have any insight into that from, from this work? Well, so remember this work only looks at call information. So we have to, the only thing we're getting from the EPCR 
is, did we do something important? Um, so using that, well, let's, let's take a look. Let's just run through an example here. Um, so y'all are going to be obviously representing Montgomery um, County Health District, EMS. So what, let's pick a threshold. Above what threshold of PLSI on any call nature do you think you should run lights and sirens on? And there's no scientific answer. You just kind of have to pull something out of your butt. So <laughs> go, Kevin. What threshold do y'all think would work? I, I would say 3%. Okay. Dr. Patrick put a four in the air, so. Perfect. How about we round up to five? Because Perfect. I actually used that as, a, as an example. So let's say we our threshold is five. Now what you do is you define your list of PLSI. Um, and I would recommend doing like a modified Delphi or something with field providers and supervisors and your, your clinical staff and your medical directors. Y'all define what that list of PLSI is. And then you just run the analysis on your data. You take all of your calls and you look at what, uh, just separate out calls that did not go lights and sirens. Now you only have your RLS calls. And you say, well, how, what proportion of those calls got one of these interventions? And that's our overall list. And then you do that exact same thing for every one of your call determinants. And if you're using priority dispatch, use the card number, for example. And once you've done that, Anything that has a PLSI rate above 5%, you continue to go lights and sirens to. If it's below 5%, you don't. You switch it. Now, looking at the ESO data set, what I did was said, well, let's set a threshold for 5%. And if we did that, we would reduce the use of red lights and sirens uh, by 47%. So saved almost a million red lights and sirens calls. If you set that threshold at 10%, it would be a 62% reduction. Now, again, I don't know what the right threshold is, and I think that there, every system is going to have a different tolerance for that, um, a different risk tolerance. You define it. Um, so y'all use 3%, and you run those numbers and decide what calls are going to go and what aren't. I cannot imagine that calls like cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest, anaphylaxis, choking, I think those are going to be above your threshold. And maybe they're not. And you say, look, we just can't, no matter what the data says, we can't justify responding to a cardiac arrest without lights and sirens. So we're going to make a manual exemption and we're still going to go on arrest. I would be surprised if cardiac arrest didn't meet your threshold, um, but maybe there's weirdness there. I would probably still go lights and sirens to arrest. That actually led to my next question for you. Um, again, a little bit off script, but, um, and a little more operational than medical. So if you want to dodge this question, feel free, but there's some public perception that, you know, mm -hmm. when you're responding to a call, you need to be timely and have lights and sirens. Are there certain types of calls or maybe like you're going to a motor vehicle accident when you look at the card dispatch card, it's a low PLSI, but there's a public perception that, you know, responding lights and sirens is important. How do you balance that? Yeah, absolutely. And so I frequently say, and you may have heard me say this, I'll give lectures where I make some extravagant statement about RLS is what kills paramedics and we need to stop doing that. Uh, there's no benefit to it. And by the way, while you're at it, stop measuring response times because they don't matter. Well, they do matter to the public. And I, I get that. And I think that is an important thing. So how do we address it? I think you do it in two ways. One, you do it through community education. 
you stress this before you make a change, stress that lights and sirens can help in a small number of cases, but they can also hurt. And what we don't want to do is run over your grandmother while we're trying to go save your son. That would be bad. So we are trying to limit the use of a potentially dangerous therapy to only those patients that need it, just like we would only give a drug that can have side effects to those patients whose benefit outweighs the risk. And I think you just have to do that community education. The next thing you do is on those calls that are not going to go lights and sirens, you actually script out for your dispatchers some, um, oh God, what are the uh, pediatricians call anticipatory guidance. So you try to set expectations. All right, man, we have an ambulance on the way. I want you to stay on the phone with me. We have determined that um, we definitely need to get there and help you, but we want to do it in a safe fashion so our crew will not be coming with lights and sirens. They are absolutely on their way, but they're going to obey traffic laws so nobody gets hurt and we can make sure we get you there quickly. Uh, I'm going to stay on the line with you and we're going to keep talking about, I don't know, whatever it is you want to talk about. So I think the community education and then the anticipatory guidance by um, the dispatchers helps. And then you mentioned MVCs. Frequently in MVCs, law enforcement is there way before we are. Have them have their similar scripts so they can start um, setting expectations appropriately. Same with your other first responders. Have them explain what's going on. Just like in the emergency department, um, Casey, your nurses don't always, when they go in and triage a patient, they don't say, at least I hope they don't, Dr. Patrick will be here immediately. <laughs> well, no, they know you're off doing 15 other things. So they will try to set those expectations. Look, um, our doctor's in with another patient. He'll get to you as soon as he can. We're going to take care of your needs right now. Yeah, and I'll just add on to the, you know, a lot of this really comes down to the scripting and the messaging, just like, you know, just like your hypothetical, you know, conference statements of of stopping measuring response times. I realistically the the nuance in that and I know that I know that you're you're well aware of this but just for the listeners you know the nuance is is not that response times don't matter it's that with red lights and sirens we don't gain enough time to make a clinical difference most times and we put ourselves and our providers at, and the community and the other folks driving on the road at at a higher risk and mm -hmm. somewhere there has to be a balance there in that if we're going to get there 90 seconds quicker yet our risk of fatality in the, in the cab or in the oncoming traffic goes up, you know, a significant amount, then, you know, it's, it is exactly like the, the analogy that you use. It's a, it's a risk benefit, risk benefit measurement of just like a, any, any medical treatment, right? If, if you've got a 20% uh, reduction in mortality and a 40% chance of serious side effects, you know, and those numbers are obviously uh, just example numbers, then, right. you know, the use of the drug is probably not, um, not going to be advised depending on how bad those side effects are. And in this situation, you know, with, you know, a 80 mile an hour, 75 mile an hour ambulance chugging down the freeway that, you know, the, the side effects can be, can be death. Right. So pretty, pretty significant. When I think about like the psychological stress of the providers too, right. So mm -hmm. driving lights and sirens, having that visual stimulus and the auditory stimulus and, you know, weaving in and out of traffic, avoiding, avoiding cars, driving lights and sirens, 
causes a physiological stress on the providers. So as they're responding to take care of the patient, they're being stressed on the way there. So they're not necessarily in the best mindset when they arrive. So thinking of more calm approach as they are going to take care of the patient where they can be methodical and more relaxed and have more focus on providing that care uh, is good for that patient. I mean, I, you know, to tie it back to the emergency room, like I don't want my, my ER physician to run laps around the nurse's station before they come in to take care of me. <laughs> out of breath, out of breath, <laughs> emergency doc doesn't give you a sense of calm and, no, and they, safety. I do know? not. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting you said that there was, and I, I'm sorry, I don't have the, the citation in front of me. It's been a while. We didn't cite this work in our paper. But there was research done where patients, simulated patients, would be hooked up with uh, a monitor, and they would just drive them around in the back of an ambulance, and they would average out their heart rate. It's sort of a case control. Then they would take the, or not a case control, a, um, a crossover, and then they would take those patients and drive them around with lights and sirens, and that they noticed their heart rate is clearly higher. They did the same thing with uh, providers, measured your heart rate driving without lights and sirens versus driving with lights and sirens and your heart, your heart rate is higher. Now we know sometimes an elevation in your heart rate is beneficial. It helps clear your mind. It helps you get more focused, but once your heart rate gets up above that point, you can't do math anymore. You can't do a lot of things anymore. So I'll tell you, I used to do uh, back when I was in shape before this stupid virus, um, I would do ultra marathons. And one of the, the aid stations on trail races are six to eight miles apart. And I'm trying to do math in my head. Okay, at my current rate, how much longer do I have to go? How fast can I drink this water? On miles one through 12, I had no problem doing that. But as my heart rate continued to increase, I could not add two plus two. Um, I just became a raving idiot, um, which granted is a relative thing. I kind of start that way. <laughs> Um, but you're right. There's a there's a sweet zone for performance, and when you exceed that, uh, you become dangerous. Actually, ironically, we just watched uh, Mike Tagman do a EMS World uh, webinar talking about burnout, yeah. and during that, he talked about uh, stressors. And there's there's two types of stressors really. You have the fear stress, where you have elevated heart rate, but you also have the challenge stress, which is the the good stress. So you will have right. basically the same physiologic response in the body, but one is more taxing mentally where you don't focus and you're not very clear. And the other actually provides mental clarity. I think that's where you're going at that the, the challenge stress is, is good for you, but maybe driving mm -hmm. lights and sirens is causing more of the fear stress because it, it is anxious driving erratically with all the, the stimulus. I think that's a, a excellent point. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not surprising that Mike would be doing a great job talking about that. He just published a book on it. Uh, I'm proud of him. The, the literal book. So, yeah. yeah. And then there's. He did. He literally wrote the book on it. And, well, and then there's the other, you know, taking this a hundred different ways, right? Then there's the, you know, time of day issue, you know, safety at 3 a.m. versus 3 p.m. and lack of sleep and, and how this weaves into burnout yep. and those and those issues. Um, so there's there's always going to be nuance and gray zones here. Um, again, I want to thank, thank Jeff for joining us. I really wanted to share this. I thought this was a, a really, uh, really impactful um, paper. And I really think there's a lot, if you haven't looked at it, we'll definitely link it in the show notes. And I urge anybody out there that's involved in, in any MS in any way. I mean, this is definitely not, I'm not, um, I'm not super ops man by any means, but this is something that 
we all can learn from and, and think about because as soon as you say it's always been done this way, that's when you mm. should stop and look a little closer. So um, thanks, Jeff, for joining us. I wanted I want to wrap up just with I know that no one takes on a project and has a clear end in mind. The end with this one, obviously, publishing the manuscript, but I know you've thought through, I'm sure you've thought through future future ideas and, and ways to, to build on this. What are Where do you see this going in the future um, on a, I guess you can take either micro or macro level as far as the next steps for you personally or, you know, where you, where you see this going in the next, you know, two, three, five years? Absolutely. So two things. One, I want to to clarify something I said earlier when I said when I'm in conferences, I spout my mouth off and say response times don't matter. Um, I always follow that up with that doesn't mean we should stop measuring them because I do think it's an important measure. If you're looking at a response time and you are not meeting the community expectations, there are other ways of decreasing response time that don't involve lights and sirens. And if we think that we just have to drive faster and use more lights and sirens, then we're completely shutting ourselves off to the other things, the safer ways we have of decreasing lights and sirens. Now, in terms of where I think this should go, what I'm going to do within my system is repeat this methodology, set our threshold, come up with our PLSI, and determine which calls we should run lights and sirens on, which we shouldn't. And we're going to run it and then look at our data and said, what is our delta? What is the decrease in lights and sirens use? Did we have a, a meaningful impact? And then also look at where we went wrong. I have no doubt there are going to be some calls that we walk in on and go, oh my God, home dude is sick. So, and we just missed it. We, we didn't get that. I think we have all responded to calls um, for a lift assist or a toe pain and realize that this person's actually sick. So we have to make the best we can. We can't aim for perfection because then you're going to run into the side effects. So that's what I'm going to do on a local area. On a wider area, I encourage everyone to do this same process within their system, but most importantly, look at your numbers. So I, am, uh, I work with NIMSQA. National EMS Quality Alliance, and we put out validated performance measures. So I would be remiss if I don't um, mention this. There are two of the NIMSQA measures that look at red lights and sirens. And because we set all of our measures up where a higher number is better, we actually measure the inverse. So we have one measure that says the proportion of calls that you respond to without lights and sirens and the proportion of transports that you do without lights and sirens. So we want that number to go up. And I think a good starting place for any agency is to actually look at your data and see how your system is performing and understand that we want to improve. Where do we want to get to? I don't know, better. Um, and that's what we're, what we're really trying to do here. Excellent. Kevin, anything you want to add? No, I just want to commend you guys on, on your work on this. This was an excellent paper. Um, it's very relevant and very timely. It's very important for all EMS agencies to look at this, this type of information and look at your internal data. And this paper is a really good starting point of where to go look. And it kind of walks the, the clinical relevance and also some operational. So there's a little bit in it for everybody. And I strongly recommend everybody reading it. And I commend you guys on, on your work on this paper. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. 
And as always, listeners, if you have questions, comments, ideas for further podcasts, shoot us an email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Again, thanks, Dr. Jarvis, for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Talk to everybody then. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.